Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal, where we're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this special episode for Earth Day, I spoke with Andrea McClellan, Norfolk City Councilwoman and co-chair of the New Deal Forum's Climate Change Working Group. Andrea and I talked about how she's addressing flooding and building resiliency in her hometown, about what climate justice means, and why the work that state and local leaders around the country are doing on climate action is so important. We also talked about Andrea's own journey into public service, how teachers in the public school system put her on a path to make a difference, and how that path has led her to announce her run for lieutenant governor in Virginia. Andrea McClellan, welcome to an honorable profession. Hi, Debbie. Great to be here with you. I'm super excited to be talking to you today as we head into Earth Day, because you've been such a leader in your community and in your state and even nationally on climate issues. And I want to point out, including the fact that you've been serving as co-chair of the New Deal Forum's Climate Working Group with Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. So happy to be talking today a little bit about climate change and particularly what can be done at the state and local levels. So let me start with a really broad question. Why is focusing on climate change so important to you? And are you optimistic that we can make some progress? Well, the climate crisis, as we often talk about it in in the future, is really a, a, a now issue. It's a very present issue where I live in Norfolk, Virginia. The road that I use to drive to City Hall is often flooded several times a month on sunny days because of sea level rise. And we need to start addressing this. This is not uh, something that's going to just be for our, our kids and our grandkids, but it is it is affecting property owners now. People are flooding out their cars. Our flood insurance rates are going up. And it is very much a real issue right now. So that's how I started to get involved with it. But then as I understood how climate is affecting communities throughout the, the country in very different ways, but we all need to be addressing this right now. Yeah, and you've, again, done so much work in um, a variety of capacities. I think I want to start by talking about the work you did co-chairing Norfolk Mayor's Commission on Climate Change Mitigation and Adaptation, where you created the region's first ever climate action plan. You know, what, what was that like to bring different stakeholders together to talk about, as you said, what's happening right now and to set some realistic and, and measurable goals for cutting emissions and, and mitigating and adapting to climate change? It was an amazing experience. We had a great group of stakeholders. And I think that one of the challenges of creating a plan like that is to have a baseline of data. And oftentimes it's very difficult for communities 
where you don't have your greenhouse gas emissions inventory. And so I'm excited about the legislation that just passed in the Commonwealth of Virginia this past year to create and require greenhouse gas emissions inventory on a regular basis be updated statewide and at the municipality level. And and I think this is going to be hugely important for others who want to implement such a plan because it's great to say you're going to do things, but until you actually can test and see the change through data, you don't know what's working and what isn't. So that was the, the first thing and one of the challenges there. And then it was just to create this large group of stakeholders. You've got folks from within the energy industry. You had stakeholders from the environmental justice community, people within transportation, the building sector, the municipality. It's important to have all of those voices sitting at the table and to try and identify what the problems are and then to come up with ideas for solutions. So it was a great effort. But the challenge, of course, is anything like this, any of these plans that we create is to actually implement them and make sure that we're going back on a, on a annual basis to say, what have we done? What haven't we done? Where's our progress? What are the issues? And that's, you know, we're, we're, we're faced with that here in the city of Norfolk. You know, we, we put these plans together and then we may or may not have the staffing to help implement those. I'm proud that the city manager created a new office focused on this as a result of the climate action plan, but oftentimes you don't have that same ability in other municipalities. That's so great uh, about the about the office and having somebody be accountable for it. I'm wondering, I know you talked at the beginning about Norfolk and some of your specific challenges around flooding and resiliency in particular. What are some of the actionable items that came out of the plan or some of the goals that you're hoping to to see over time that maybe would apply to other areas of the country that you think people should be focused on? Well, one of our challenges is we we don't have the ability to finance all of the needs as it relates to resiliency, as well as, you know, reducing our carbon footprint, energy efficiency, et cetera. So what we implemented something called PACE, PACE financing stands for property assessed clean energy. It's in 32 states in the district of Columbia. Essentially it's another tool in the toolbox that encourages and incentivizes property owners to implement energy efficiency. And in Virginia, which I think we are unique in the country, we've actually also offered we call it PACE R. So R stands for resilience, where property owners can finance resilience projects and stormwater retention projects, which might include things like elevating HVAC units, putting in efforts for foundation for dry proofing basements and things along those lines. Because for us, as as mentioned before, climate is is a combination of mitigation and reducing our carbon footprint and becoming more energy efficient, as well as adaptation and recognizing how do we how do we weatherproof our properties now? So um, that was number one issue there. We've talked about creating more opportunities for, we're working with opportunity zone funds that are solar funds, uh, which is pretty exciting. We are examining recycling and composting options, but trying to figure out how do we do a better job of uh, reducing our waste or addressing our waste as well. And something that we haven't yet done, but I'm excited to tackle it is working with the business community and having them partner with us so that the businesses themselves are more effectively reducing their own carbon footprints, whether it's their fleets, whether it's creating more energy efficient buildings, whether it's uh, encouraging the use of solar. Those are really, you know, we, we can't do it alone as a government. We have to have our partners helping us too. Yeah, I love that. And, and, 
speaking of partners, I mean, one thing that stands out to me when I look at some of the work you've done is how much work you've done, not just in the city of Norfolk, but also regionally and even at the state level. I know you're chairing the Coastal Resilience Subcommittee for the Hampton Roads Planning District and chairing the Smart City and Innovation Committee for the Hampton Roads Transportation District Committee, as well as leading statewide efforts around offshore wind and other issues. So a question for you that probably has broader implications than just climate, but in, with climate in mind, you know, why do you think it's so important to think about these, some of these big issues regionally uh, or at the state level rather than kind of, you know, just within your city borders? Well, certainly as it relates to flooding, you know, water doesn't know geopolitical boundaries. It's really based on a watershed, our flooding events. So we've got to be thinking about that from that regional perspective. But the challenge, of course, with that is that we have no regional planning dollars related to flooding. The only regional planning dollars we have are related to transportation. So we are we are taking our tra- regional transportation model and our state transportation planning mechanism, and we are trying to replicate that into a, a Commonwealth flood board so that we would start to look at flooding and resiliency from a regional perspective. So that's certainly very important. And we need the federal government and states to start thinking about things from that perspective. When you think about purchasing energy and renewable energy, to the extent that we can do things on a regional or statewide basis, and we can leverage uh, several, you know, instead of just my city of 250,000, if we can have a population of a million purchasing clean renewable energy, I think we're going to have a much, much stronger buying power. So I think thinking about purchase plans, uh, energy purchase plans at a regional level is also very, very important as well. And then transportation, of course, is very regional in nature. We live in a region where I think we're number three in the country in terms of people who live in one city and work in another. And so our regional public transit authority, I serve as the vice chair. I'm very proud that we brought the first all electric transit buses to our community. And so recognizing that we need to be thinking about transit from a regional perspective and and just the collaboration and and coalition building is really critical in all these in all these components. You know, and you talked a little bit about having a federal partner or talk, you know, alluded to to kind of the role that the feds need to play here. Obviously during the Trump administration, you know, the federal government was taking a very different tact on climate, you know, pulling out of the climate Paris climate agreement and even questioning whether climate change was real. I'm curious about kind of how how it's different now having a partner in the White House who's prioritizing climate action and also what you're hoping to see with with that change uh, from the federal government in the months ahead to support state and local leaders working on this issue? Well, let's just start with the obvious. We finally have a president that believes science is real and an administration. And what a breath of fresh air that is. And it's amazing that we spent the last four years fighting those issues. So the fact that the Biden administration has prioritized climate, not just within one specific agency, but taking the idea and making sure that every agency prioritizes climate and environmental justice is incredible and so refreshing and so needed. So I'm I'm hugely supportive of what the Biden administration is doing. And and they also recognize when we're thinking about infrastructure, that infrastructure is beyond the typical roads and bridges and highways, but infrastructure as it relates to our our grid and storage and broadband uh, and so many other things. I mean, broadband doesn't seem like something that should be part of the issue as it relates to climate, but think for a moment about 
when we, for example, in a coastal community like Norfolk or in Florida or elsewhere, when we have hurricanes or we have massive flooding, people can't get to and from work. Kids can't get to and from school. Well, when that happens is what the pandemic has taught us is that you need a really strong broadband connection so that you can still have connectivity and continuity, whether it's going to school, visiting your healthcare professional or going to work. And so I think that piece of the infrastructure broadband is also, it is it is uh, tangential, but very important to addressing climate as well. Absolutely. And I, and I want to actually come back. I'm going to sneak in a question on broadband because I know it's another one of your your passions and that you're doing a lot of work on. But sticking with climate for a second, I, I wanted to ask, we were talking about the Biden administration and, and this, as you say, this new era, thank goodness that we have of people who are uh, taking science seriously and, and addressing this, you know, really existential crisis. And when he, when the administration unveiled the American Jobs Plan recently, they've been making the case that by investing in a clean energy economy, we can create jobs and address climate at the same time. And for me, I, I was kind of thinking about how you know, this false choice that was offered up to us for so long, right, that you can either choose the environment or you can choose the economy, you know, and, um, and I know that this is something you've spoken a lot about, and, uh, you know, having a business background yourself, and working with small businesses, you know, that you, you've, you've often talked about the need to do both. So how, how do you talk to people about the intersection of climate and the economy? And what are some of those opportunities you're seeing in Norfolk to create jobs as you address the climate crisis? Well, the first issue that is a a great opportunity, I think, as it relates to jobs, good paying jobs, is the growth that we anticipate with offshore wind. Virginia has committed to 5.2 gigawatts of offshore wind, which will provide energy for 650,000 homes. So a great clean renewable energy source, which is important, but also with that, uh, the potential for hundreds, if not thousands of, of new jobs for providing supply chain for offshore wind. And, and it's not only for Virginia, it's for everywhere from North Carolina up to Maine. And we've actually entered into a, a compact where we are, we're looking at this for Maryland and uh, Virginia and North Carolina together to, to try and tackle this. And collectively, how do we address this and make sure that we have folks trained for these jobs in the future? It's a bit of a, a chicken and the egg. You want people trained. So when these manufacturers of wind turbines are coming from Northern Europe, that they have people ready and and, and willing to, to start. But at the same time, if the jobs aren't there just yet, it's a bit of a challenge on, you know, at what point do you train people? Here's the good news, though. The good news is that a lot of the skills related to offshore wind are directly transferable and similar to what we need for shipbuilding and ship repair. And as you can imagine, in a place like Norfolk, home to the largest naval base in the world, shipbuilding and ship repair is a huge issue and something that we need a lot of. So the good news is we can train people up for either of those areas and, uh, and, and benefit. So that's, that's offshore wind. But, you know, as it relates to flooding and water quality, uh, blue jobs, as I like to call them, are um, in, in major demand. And so we need to train people there. And then, of course, green jobs as it relates not only to offshore wind, but also solar and uh, weather, weatherization, energy efficiency, our grid, all of those are huge opportunities. And I think we need to make sure that we've got our trade schools and community colleges and certification programs. We need to be working with K-12, pro-technical education, all of these, it's just a huge opportunity. And I think we are, we're going to see just with this Biden administration, they're, the way they're leaning in and putting dollars into workforce development, I think a ma- massive transformation into uh, workforce development. And I'm so excited about it. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mentioned at the top, Andrea, that you, and I'd be remiss to not ask you about this, of course, that you are co-chair of our New Deal Forum Climate Change Working Group, which released some really exciting recommendations last August in an event with the president of Microsoft and with Gina McCarthy and others on a host of issues from reducing emissions and creating this resiliency, climate justice, and, and much more. I first thank you for your leadership on this issue nationally and helping coordinate this effort. And I'm just would love to hear from you about kind of what that experience was like in working and why it's so, so important, you know, what's happening at the state and lo- local level, why that needs to be front and center and, and your, your experience with working elect- with elected officials around the country on this issue. Yeah, well, I mean, at the time we were getting so so little help from the federal government that, you know, states and localities really had to step up to the plate. And boy, did we. I mean, I'm so proud of the New Deal Leaders Network and the amazing minds and leadership that we have, you know, whether it's um, talking with Kate Gallego, the mayor of Phoenix, or Rob Warner uh, from New Hampshire, or Boise, Idaho, Mayor Lauren McLean. I mean, there's just the extraordinary folks who came to the table. Of course, my co-chair, Mandela Barnes, Lieutenant Governor from Wisconsin, and the great work that he's done on environmental justice. Just the great minds and the ideas and the opportunity for us to share our ideas and brainstorm and learn from one another. That's really, really important. And yes, we, we are so excited about the Biden administration, all the great work that they're doing. But the fact of the matter is we can be a lot more flexible and creative on the ground at the local level, and we can try things out in a way that you might not be able to at the federal level. So having those opportunities and be able to share what we've done is, is really critical. And I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that the New Deal Leaders Network exists so that we have that ability to sort of mind meld, if you will, and move the ball forward and amplify our messages. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks again for your leadership. And I, I do, I just completely agree on this kind of the experimentation, right, that has to happen to see what works and to be able to share and spread what works. So we're looking forward to continue to work with a network of leaders around the country, this time, as you say, in tandem with a partner in the White House that um, that is going to be looking for these solutions that we can amplify. So I mentioned I wanted to switch gears a little bit for a second and talk about another issue, which you've already brought up, which is broadband. I know that you had an op-ed in the Roanoke Times, I think, this week about the importance of broadband, certainly during the pandemic, but after the pandemic as well, and how you think that Virginia might be able to be a leader nationally on broadband issues. Tell me about why this is so important to you and, and, and how you see Virginia positioning itself. Listen, it, broadband is it is an infrastructure issue that underlies so many elements of our society, our industry, whether it's our kids going to school, it's people accessing healthcare, it's you know farmers ac- accessing advanced agriculture and weather data, and of course the obvious, you know, people working from home and businesses with continuity. And we see in Virginia something that I'm sure that we're seeing all over the country, and that is we have rural communities that just don't have any connection. They don't have the infrastructure in place to even and try and get a signal. And then we have other communities in urban and suburban areas like Norfolk, where 25% of our homes don't have access to high-speed internet. The infrastructure exists. It's just not affordable because there's not we lack competition. And so we need to be addressing broadband to ensure that we have ubiquitous access, but it also has to be reliable, high speed and affordable. So for me, selfishly, I want Virginia to be number one. And so to the extent that we can bring the private sector, academia, the nonprofit arena, our universities and our communities together to try and figure out what's the best path forward, 
I think there's a real opportunity there. The other thing that's interesting about Virginia is close to where I live off the shore of Virginia beach, we have subsea cables coming in that offer the highest internet speeds of anything on the East coast. And so my community and our region are leveraging that with a, a regional broadband ring where we are joining together five municipalities, investing our infrastructure dollars to create a 110-mile highway of sorts that will take our fiber our, of those five cities, and then we will link to the subsea cables coming into Virginia Beach. And then we are marketing that out to industry. And the goal is to, one, provide more internet competition and increase speeds and lower prices for our citizens, but also from an economic development standpoint to attract industry, whether it's advanced manufacturing, fintech, anybody that needs big fat data pipes to come to the Hampton Roads area. Because while we have one of the busiest seaports on the East Coast, we want people to also think about our region as one of the best digital ports. And we're moving data in addition to moving goods. That's super exciting. <laughs> I didn't, And I didn't know about those offshore pipes until I read them in your op-ed this week. So I think that's a really exciting opportunity for you guys. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, it's, um, you know, but it, that's just one element. That's that's fiber in the ground, which will always be um, required for the backhaul for 5G and wireless and other things. But, you know, I'm excited about also looking into technologies like Starlink, which is based with Elon Musk and SpaceX. So you've got broadband satellite with this new LEO or low earth orbit satellite technology where you don't have to dig up the roads and deal with right of way for laying fiber, but rather the middle mile to get to that router in your home is space. And you can potentially implement broadband almost immediately without significant, massive millions of dollars in a community to get hmm. there. So I'm really excited about that. We are um, piloting that in Wise County, which is one of the most southwestern parts of the state, one of the, the poorest, more, most rural areas. And we're, you know, we've got 500 kids who haven't been able to get online in this pandemic, now all of a sudden are able to because of this new program with Starlink. And that's, you know, I'm agnostic in terms of the carrier, but the, the technology is really interesting. And regardless of whether it's that or other technologies, I think we all need to be thinking about how do we constantly provide a mechanism for testing out new technologies. So for example, new deal leaders. One of the first things I learned my first year was this concept of startup and residence. Uh, that started out in the Bay Area that we've implemented in Norfolk. And the idea is how do we invite entrepreneurs in and use our cities and our states as laboratories to test out new ideas. So whether it's broadband, it's energy efficiency, it's flood mitigation, whatever it is, I think we need to have a better partnership and encourage innovation in, in that relationships there. And I think the Biden administration is, is, is definitely going to take that on. And I know that our friend and now Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, is going to lead the way in that too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a great segue, Andrea, because I wanted to talk about something that has been inherent in a lot of what you've said in talking about the rural uh, areas of your state that haven't had access is equity. And um, and both in terms of climate and, and environmental justice, also in terms of broadband, but across so many issues. Clearly, we've seen the pandemic just highlight what we're already big gaps in in access and in service. And and we know that coming out of the pandemic, we've, um, as, to use the president's term, and, uh, is, you know, that we're gonna have to build back better. And I know that this has been an, an issue that you've talked a lot about as a city councilwoman, and, and as we'll talk about in a bit, as a, as a candidate for statewide office. So tell me about how you think about access and equity as we rebuild our economy. 
Yeah. I mean, listen, I, everybody wants to have equitable access to opportunity, right? But it doesn't always happen that way. And we've got to really be intentional here. And we've got to make sure that, that we have members of our community sitting at the table who can address this issue. You know, my lived experience is not going to be the same as, as somebody else, uh, another part of my community in Norfolk who might live in a neighborhood where they don't have access because it's not affordable. Or I just feel like for too long, we just had folks who were rich, white, and powerful at the at the table. And we didn't have enough uh, communities of color. And I'm so glad that we're starting to recognize the need for this, but that doesn't mean that just because we've recognized the need that it's, we're going to fix it. We've got to, we've got to lean into this and make sure that we are holding each other accountable. And that's what I'm, I'm really proud of, of some of our new deal leader, Mayor elect Tashara Jones from St. Louis, who just got elected, talks about this so much. And Mandela Barnes, our Lieutenant Governor from Wisconsin, and we're all learning from one another. But I think, you know, for example, in Norfolk, we, for decades, if not centuries, we have underinvested in our poorer communities. And so as a result of that and the redlining that happened, we have these neighborhoods that are seeing flooding in ways that, you know, my neighborhood doesn't. And we've got to go back and we've got to address that inequity and ensure that we are providing infrastructure dollars to try and remedy that, those those decades of, of underinvestment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, it does feel like we really have kind of a once in a, you know, hundred-year potentially opportunity here to 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 address so many long-standing inequities. So it's exciting to hear you talk about some of the ways we might do that. And it's to your to use your word, I, I just couldn't agree more. That just has to be so intentional, you know, um, and not just a. It is good we're talking about it, but how how are we going to get there? Back to your earlier comments about the the climate action plan, right? It's great to have a plan, but you know, holding ourselves accountable is going to be the key here. I think going forward. Yeah, it's um. That is the challenge of the elected official. You know, we 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 hold we have terms, and if we don't get elected again, or you know, administrations change, and that's one of the challenges of government in general is priorities change. And so, some of these plans, with all the greatest intentions, don't get followed through. So, I think it's the good news is I think we have a citizenry that's more engaged than ever, and hopefully that you know folks will be out there and making sure that they are part of the solution. You know, I I I always. I'm challenged because everybody pays attention to federal elections. Fewer people pay attention to state elections and far fewer people pay attention to local elections. But it is really at the local level where we can make an impact on a daily basis in people's lives. And so I constantly tell my friends, my neighbors, my constituents, like show up at the city council meeting or the school board meeting or watch us online, you know, reach out to your elected officials, introduce yourself you will likely make a real impact. And it's it's something that most people don't think about. They just pay attention to what's happening on Twitter or on one of the major news channels, but it's really what happens at the local level that people need to be paying attention to. Absolutely. I could, well, I couldn't agree more. And maybe we can spend a, a few minutes talking about how you got into that local office, actually, and and got into public service. I know that you grew up as a daughter of a single mom who didn't have an easy path. I'm kind of curious about that experience for you in your childhood growing up and and how maybe that helped you think about or how shape how maybe it shaped your your view about public service. Yeah. So my unfortunately my yeah my dad left when I was fairly young and my mom she had never worked outside the home at that point. Uh, she was one of eight kids had never gone to college and didn't have a, a 
for lack of a term, marketable skill and was able to go back to our local community college and learn a trade. And she became a draftsman and worked for a local government contractor. And recognizing, as I think back now and running statewide for lieutenant governor here in Virginia, just the need to have very strong community college systems and trade schools, because there are a lot of people like my mom or for whatever circumstance, you know, industries changing are going to need to be retrained and upskilled. And we need to be, have people be able to, to re-engage in an educational system that's not just a K-12 system or a four-year institution. And I think that's one of the areas where I'd love to focus as lieutenant governor. As a result of that experience too, you know, listen, I was a latchkey kid of the 80s, which meant, you know, I came home with, by myself and nobody was at the house because in addition to my mom's day job, she was also working at the local department store to make ends meet. So I just, you know, thank goodness had amazing schools and amazing teachers. And I got involved in politics there because I wanted to get involved in extracurricular activities. And so I was part of the student council and, you know, stayed after school and raised money for a variety of, of good causes and learned what it was like to be a leader back then. It was very foundational for me. And then, you know, I, I, I graduated and went on to the University of Virginia. And at that point, I thought, oh, I was going to go into business and industry. I didn't think much about politics anymore until 2008 when I was inspired, like so many of us were, by Barack Obama. And I started knocking doors and making calls and became a precinct captain locally and got involved with our local Democratic committee and started using my business background to raise money for great candidates until I became a candidate myself. In May of 2016, I ran against a 16-year incumbent for the Norfolk City Council. And at the time, it was very interesting because I was told by several folks that, you know, Andrea, it's just not your time. You're not going to raise enough money. You need to wait. And it's not your turn. And I decided uh, because I'm of the way I am, uh, that I would try anyway. And I basically put a business plan together because, you know, running for office is very similar to being an entrepreneur. And I have that background. I had a great staff and great volunteers. And we won 19 of 23 precincts and surprised a lot of folks locally. And um, so now I represent 125,000 Virginians and love every minute of the opportunity to serve at the local level, as I've mentioned but have decided that I would like to do more and think I can take the, the work that I've done on broadband, on, on climate, on workforce, on transportation and transit statewide. Excited to be running right now in Virginia. Running in the, in the middle of a pandemic is uh, not ideal. Running in a seven-way primary for the Democratic nomination, similarly, not ideal. But um, as proven, I don't mind a challenge and we're just trying to make fun, have fun and make the best of it and put some good ideas out on the table. So regardless of the outcome on the June 8th primary, I'm excited to have had the opportunity. And I think ultimately I will be in a good place and fingers crossed we'll, we'll break the glass ceiling in Virginia because we've never had a female lieutenant governor and look forward to being the first. I love that. Thank you for kind of walking us through all that. And, um, and yes, fingers crossed. And I, I guess I just would would ask kind of in, in thinking about what you just told us about your your path. This is an honorable profession, right? The name of the podcast, because, you know, we fundamentally believe that government has a role to play and that public service is honorable. You know, what is it about public service that speaks to you in terms of, you know, the impact you can have? You know, it's it, it gets to the heart of the, the the term. It's service. It's It's helping others. And I've been very fortunate and have had many blessings in my life, certainly had some challenges and struggles as a child, but through good luck and, you know, some hard work and quite, let's just be frank, some privilege, 
I have a lot of blessings and feel like I need to make sure that others can share those, those opportunities. And I love the opportunity to, to try and connect dots for people, to try and find resources for them, to try and solve problems and create access to opportunity as my campaign is talking about right now. I don't know. I just, I wake up and I feel compelled to do it. I don't, I don't know where the, the magic is. I don't know where it comes from, but it's just who I am. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities in my life. And I, I look forward to making opportunities for other people's lives too. Yeah. Well, I love it. That seems like a, a great place to end it, Andrea. I, you know, we've, I've had the privilege of working with you for a long time and I um, am so impressed obviously and inspired by all the work that you've done in Norfolk to tackle some of the big challenges we've talked about today. And frankly, many more that we didn't get to talk about today, but I just, you know, want to thank you for your public service. Thank you for stepping into the ring for this new statewide challenge. It, it's this, the time we're in right now, as we talked about earlier, I mean, it's to me just couldn't be more important for, for leaders to step up and take us into the the next, era that will be, you know, be in America that works better for everyone. So thank you for, for putting yourself out there and being someone who's going to lead us to that, that next path. Thanks, Debbie. And thank you too. I, I love this podcast and thanks for letting me share a little bit about my ideas. And I hope others will listen to all the other great podcasts that you have recorded because there's some amazing leaders that, who are part of this network. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.